Welcome back to the Inner Fright Endurance Podcast, episode number 170. Tom Walker, hello. Hello. You're in charge. You're in charge today, mate. (laughs) I'm in charge. What have you been up to this week? Well, apart from wearing Hoka shoes, because they are partner of the show. (laughs) I've actually been been wearing Hoka's a bit more lately with with some run training and went back to the Mac 5s last week. What were you in before that? Playing around with the ring cons. Um, but went back to Mac 5 and was like, should never have left. <laughs> Still my favourite shoe. Still your favourite shoe. Still my favourite shoe. What? We're actually going to do a show in a couple of shows time on Hoka shoes. A bit more detail, um, not just saying people should wear them because we run in them, but actually give details about how we found them and why, why we use them. And the actual theory behind what they do as a run shoe, because they do look quite different to a lot of other run shoes, don't they? Mm. They're... Yeah. I remember back back in the day, people used to slate Hoka for their design mm. and how they looked. But they've certainly, that's completely been revamped. They are a much more modern shoe. They are quite technical and they have a full range for all different runner types, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, there's lots to break down or lots to get into in the shoes themselves. Um, what are you going to cover in that show? Tease us a little bit. Well, how the shoe is made up of, so like the different layers that they have in the shoe, and then more around the range of what kind of shoe to be going for at what different type of runs you are doing. And it might actually highlight the fact of you might not be doing enough variety of running, potentially. But yeah, we'll be coming on to that. Mate, you are wearing our new Patagonia Endurance hat. Yes. How is it? It's very, very comfortable. I actually, it's... The same Patagonia hat that we used to have, but now it has a brand new logo on it. Mm. You cool. can uh, you can pick up these fantastic Patagonia hats. They're good for fashion. They're good for running. <laughs> fashion advice from you, mate. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. They are. They're good for fashion, good for running. You can pick them up at Inner Fight. Or I think you can pick them up on the website. Oh, don't talk from about the, the website here. Don't talk about the website. The website. <laughs> when it's up and running, you'll be able to pick them up from the website. But until then, head down to Inner Fight and pick up a brand new Patagonia hat. You can also pick up some other apparel. I some can't shorts, wait to see where you go with this. Some shorts, some vests. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? We have hydration vests. We've got bladders. There's protein powders. There's snacks. Yeah. It's everything you need for your fitness. Fly upstairs for a coffee. Get caffeinated. Head back down to the shop. And high five the rock stars. And then jump into a strength endurance class. Oh, mate, your segue. I mean, my segue in... Prowess is uh, finally rubbing off on you. <laughs> Good. Right. Today, we have a guest. Um, he's been on the show before, Robbie Britton. We had him on, I can't actually remember what we had him on to talk about before. 1001 he, Running He has tips. a book, 1001 Running Tips. He is head of endurance at Centurion Running, and he leads coaching development for the team of coaches there. And for over a decade, he's been working with amateur athletes as well as working up to manage the 24-hour Great Britain team. Uh, Robbie himself has also been working towards 24-hour races for a good few years now, and he set his sights on breaking the British record, which had been standing for 41 years. He... Spoiler alert, he did that. He ran 277.4 kilometers in 24 hours last week. And so we are going to talk to him about his training, his nutrition, his mindset, a bit of background. It's a really good show, actually. A really good chat. Yeah. He, he's full of energy. He's full of enthusiasm. And it's 
I think it comes across really well. One thing that you actually picked up on is he's not a slow runner. No. He has some very quick 10K, 5K times and a really quick marathon as well, actually. Yeah. Um, but he sort of, he plays that down a little bit. He we, does. But we get into that, <laughs> don't we? We get into it and talk about why that it could be the key to his his 24-hour success. Yeah. Because when you look at his, his average, 277.4 is 5.11 per kilometer as an average, which is fairly steady. I think quite a lot of people could hold that pace for a few K. Mm. Not for a day. Not for a day. So we get into that as well. Yeah. Here we go. Let's have a chat with Robbie. Robbie, welcome to the show. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to, <laughs> nice to meet you again. <laughs> Thanks for having me, you sir. <laughs> Please don't swear. Uh, no, it's fine. So you, we have you on the show to talk about, uh, well, the British. Start again, so I don't start with like a set of bastards. That would be a terrible <laughs> way to do it. You edit this, we can go and act straight like that. Don't care. We get our, our audio guy to cut that out. You've just come back from breaking the 24-hour British record that was held since 1982. Yes. 1982. And let, don't get me, you're 41, right? What? Day over 20. You're 41. I think you're, I, you're 41, maybe. I'm 36. <laughs> <laughs> I read somewhere that you were 41. Lies. 41 pounds of carbs. Two years wow. old. Runner's World said that you were 41 along with the previous record holder and that he was 41 as well when he set the record. No, he wasn't. What? I, I mean, I know the guy who wrote the Runners World article. I'll be having a word with Rick Pearson. If he's <laughs> do you know what I'll do? I'll send you the link afterwards. And then I was like, oh, this is brilliant because Camille Heron has just broken the 48-hour record and she is also 41. I was like, this is fantastic. Are this you is sure my, about that? This is my segue. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, fuck. I don't know. Maybe we'll cut what's the show your, from here. What's <laughs> your favourite number? Young man is 41. Oh, it's like running keeps you young. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. You know what it is? The record is 41 years old. Maybe yeah. that's it. Is that what it is? Okay. If, if it's whatever, yeah. 1982. Then it's 41. Must be a typo. Okay. Anyway, sorry. You broke a 41-year-old record that was set in 1982. That does work. Best bit, Robbie. You used to be a maths teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every, every day is it on Sesame Street. Today's number, well, oh, it's 41 again, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what's the letter today? It's also 41. That's it it's not even a number. It's not even a letter. Uh, <laughs> right. David, Dowdle, right. David Dowdle was, I think, in his 20s when he set that record. Okay. Uh, he's in his 70s now. Um, and I am 36. 36. I will be 41 in five years. And I'll <laughs> we'll come back on the show then. Record in five years' time. So we can come back on the podcast and edit that little bit in. <laughs> And then we'll be golden. Oh, I'm sweating here. No, when, this... when, okay, when did you set your eyes on this record? When did this become a goal? Probably about 41, no, uh, eight years ago. <laughs> eight years ago. Um, after, so I ran in the same park in Turin for the 2015 World Champs. And I, I went from being kind of like a, a, a team member in the 24-hour squad with a PB of 239 kilometers, nine meters. And I jumped up. And I ran 261, which was a big PB for me. Um, and I finished third at the World and European Champs. Got some shiny medals, team gold. And then I was like, well, I mean, I only have to jump half as much again to get the British record. So I'd love to try. 
and that's followed eight years. The next couple of years, I had, I had knee surgery. I raced the 27 champs to, like with a viral infection. Uh, and then I just stepped back from the 24 hours to, well, as a competitor. And I was part, I've been part of the management team for the for Great Britain and Northern Irish squad for the last, uh, yeah, since 2017. Um, but yeah, like back in 2015, it was when I was like, well, maybe I've got a chance of doing this. Maybe I can, I can step up to that next level. So it's been a, it's been a while. Um, but yeah, it's about eight years that I've really, really, and like last year, last August was the first re-attempt to kind of got back into a place where I could train and, uh, and compete at 24 hours. And part of that is it's just because the training is quite, can be quite tough. Like you want to be in a good place to be able to do the training. And then you have to run for a lot of like, well, a whole day. Um, and then that's also quite like if the body's not quite right, if the body's got like a chronic injury that which I had like down my right hand side, it was it was just tightening up, which is fine. It was fine to run marathons, 50Ks, like I could train a decent man each week, but it needed to be spot on right to to run for 24 hours. And and like thankfully, um touch wood keep stays that way. Uh but yeah, so last August I, I had a crack at it. I went at, at the track that Dave David Dowdle ran in 1982 um, in Gloucester. Same track, felt poetic that way. Um, but it was a heat wave. It was like 33, 34 degrees. There's the alarm. X. Sorry, I've been waiting for that alarm to go off. It's been uh, playing on my mind. Um, and I fell short. I, I ran a PB over 100 miles, but uh, fell short uh, in that one. Trained for one in December in Sweden, which was indoors in Bacchio. Um and I was well up for it. I like when people ask about the training for the for this race and the one in um, December. The training for December was perfect, and I got COVID eight days out. The training for this one not so perfect, but obviously all right. Um, but it was just kind of like it was an extension of the work from last year. And then yeah, my wife Nats found it. They, they were going to be doing a, a race earlier, the earlier than usual in Parco Ruffini in, in Turin, and that's the same park I ran. In the world champs and so and it's only like 90 minutes from where we live so it was perfect to use the word perfect multiple times already um but yeah no it was it was spot on we were really like so we went and and did that so yeah it was eight years since the kind of first fall and have a crack at that and a good three races now where I've, I've physically tried what's the you must still be quite fresh in your mind what what's the emotion when you finally achieve a goal you set Eight years ago yeah it was pretty good actually um like someone asked about it there's a picture of me crossing the line i've got a video of it as well and i'm like pretty pumped we across the line for the record and then i got like 13 minutes left so i, I just I, I i i was quite emotional at that and then i i got to business and just kept going a bit faster i picked up the pace in the last couple of laps because there was no for that, it was about getting the record, and you, I didn't want to risk anything like going too fast, pulling a, like a muscle or anything. You could just twenty-four hour race; it can be on, and then it can be off if you just if you catch a, I don't know, catch a curb or sank or trip over going around someone. So yeah, I just I just started going like I got past the record, and then was like, right, wait, how much further can we go? And I had what thirty minutes to find that out, and now pretty I don't know. Like I, I guess I was really pleased, really pleased, kind of it felt like a long-term goal had been achieved, but also that I could go further. So it, like straight away, my mind was working towards what can we improve um, where like, yeah. So it's, it was weird, but people say you should enjoy your, your, your uh, victories. It's the first 24 hour race I've actually won. 
Um, seeing as I've made a living out of being around the 24-hour racing world, um, seems seems odd to win one for the first time 10 years after the first race. Huh. What I find really, really interesting was that I think there's a video that you posted of you you finishing that the final few seconds of the race and you're running at probably, I don't know, 440 per K, something like that. And then the timer goes and your body just instantaneously shuts down and you go from running, we'll call it beautifully, to hobbling and then you collapse on the floor and you can't move a single muscle. And you're almost helped up onto, is it a chair or the side of the road? Bench, bench there. And Apparently I was almost the same spot I finished um, eight years ago. Yeah. But like a different course then as well. The yeah, like I was running like four minutes per K at the end. Like it really picked up and that I don't know, you kind of find a bit extra. And they they blow a they they blow a gun. They don't blow guns, do they? They fire a gun a minute ago. Yeah. They fire another one at the finish. And when that gun goes at a minute to go, like I think if they then didn't fire a gun. For another, I don't know, 10 minutes, you wonder if you'd keep going. Because you're like, right, I'll give it everything for this last minute. Um, and then they fired it, yeah. And like I guess like the, the braking at that point as well is quite difficult because you have to drop your, your cone to mark mm-hmm. where they, they measure the next, the last partial lap. Um, so I dropped that, and then that kind of extra bit of braking, and, and yeah, like walking walking was difficult at that point. And I was like I as soon as I stopped, because the body's been kind of working hard for 24 hours and making sure it keeps itself cool as much as it can for 24 hours. The second you stop, you start getting cold. The mm. muscles, yeah, they aren't, they don't need to do that anymore. And the mind kind of goes, right, we've, we've been there. We've done that. Like now we're going to, let's hobble around a bit. Like it's a bit, the video has um, my wife, Nat's coming over and like, so I'm on the bench and putting a jacket and then Jamie, Dr. Jamie Pugh's, um one of my crew members, he kind of rushes over. I really like it. He kind of like scuttles over like, oh, come on, son. Like, and he kind of helps me onto a bench. So I like, I really like that video for, yeah, it's quite funny. But also to me, it shows two, like two people in there, and Sarah Jane, uh, Jamie's wife, who was, who was filming like three people who were a really big part of the journey and a big part of the adventure. And I can hear like even in the audio, but even to see in their actions, how much they care about it as well. And like, it really was a team effort. So I love that video because it's funny and and it shows a little kind of insight into the 25 world, but also it's it's got a little bit more of a deeper meaning for me as well. Yeah. Amazing. When you when you plan these things, do you have a rough a rough idea of what paces you want to be holding or what you need to be hitting at what times? And do you have a plan A, B, or C? Or is it like, let's just run and see what I can do? So with the 24 hour, I guess that my paces were dictated a little bit by the record so we did want to run a record but instead of saying all right i'm going to run this pace and see what happens it was we went the other way around and said how how fit have i got to be to run that pace so let's get that fit and then let's get to the start line um i've been in the lab at liverpool john moore's and we've done a lot of testing in before sweden actually in the similar environment to sweden we were looking at heart rate and and cardiac drift and kind of like substrate utilization like what i was burning again how hard each different paces were and we knew i could run the record pace when i'd started off around 13 k an hour if that's the preferred i don't know what it's in that works yeah um and we've done we've done testing like 14 13 and a half 12 and a half kind of looked at and it seemed like 13 was the best spot to kind of be sitting at and then weirdly on the day so like i'd I'd go off heart rate um for most of it the goal was to try and keep it around 130 135 beats a minute um 
very quickly on the day, it went quite a little bit higher than that. And the legs felt okay. So I, I did go with it a little bit. Um, so we normally have a, a decent plan, but it's not, it's based on feel, it's based on heart rate, it's kind of based on perceived effort rather than a set pace. That said, if I was off the set pace, I probably would have sped up. But the, the first three hours that the timing was off and my watch wasn't quite making it accurate enough. So we didn't really know the pace anyway. So it just, it was just like running around and yeah. And it was really humid. So it was the weird, it was really weird. It was like below 10 degrees, um, but 85, 90% humidity. And I was the, I like a lot of the Italians were full tights. Like one guy was in tights, long sleeve, jacket, cap, gloves, and a, and a, a race vest for a, a 1,013 metre loop. I was like, I'm not sure why he had the vests. So I was like, chatting to him as I came past me, like, are you not like roasting? Because I'm in singlet and, t- and short shorts. Um, and I guess, so because of that high humidity, there was no evaporative cooling. So I was gradually heating up and, it just felt weird to to what like again what you should be doing in that kind of situation is, is dousing yourself in cold water using ice to cool yourself down because it's just not wicking away and I was pouring water on myself but reasonably uh, like semi regularly and it was just sitting there so I was like I'm still wet I don't need to douse myself with more but that water had warmed up and there was just sitting on my skin so I think in hindsight like it was Jamie and I chatting about it and. And I think, like I, my pace then slowed, and my heart rate went up because of this humidity. So yeah, we had a plan. It 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 didn't quite, we didn't stick to it completely early on because of the humidity side of things. And in hindsight, I'd love to have done a bit more cooling and like actually just poured ice all over myself, which would have again. There's loads of things that affect something like that, and and but weirdly, one part of it was the social element, like to be in that park in that weather, surrounded by people who looked cold absolutely dousing myself in ice water would have felt socially weird it would have just been like oh why is he doing that it's kind of but it was exactly what i needed and i run I, I run quite hot like um i raced in october on the trail at the top of the first climb we've been climbing for about an hour my wife's saying she's like did you fall in a river and i was like no like everyone else had come in hats and gloves and stuff and, and jackets and i was in a, again vest and singlets absolutely saturated and i just run really hot like um i'd be i'd be in trouble where you boys are based i'd just be kind of melting on the floor um but yeah so so i your question was about pacing so we did have a plan and i i ignored it early doors and just went at record pace yeah going going back to the watch what you said there the first few hours your watch wasn't really working so you weren't able to accurately track how fast you're running if you're trying to hit a goal or a record pace surely pace is quite essential so how do you feel or what's your mindset like when you start running and your watch isn't working what do you it was a being generous to watch mm. the actual so the computers measuring the the laps weren't showing for the first three hours so we didn't know exactly how far i'd gone my generous watch was probably helping at that situation because i was going a bit slower than planned for the heart rate but the watch was kind of it was my hype man in the corner saying like hey you going well good mate yeah spot on in reality, I was a bit slower, and so it probably worked in my favour for the watch to be a little bit inaccurate there. Because if I'd have noticed that I was like not going quite as quickly as I thought I was for for a higher heart rate, I might have been demoralised. I might have been. My wife Nats had had a, a cold the week beforehand, and obviously after the after having COVID in December and going into that race and having a similar situation where the heart rate was elevated, but for different reasons, um, I might have. Yeah, I might have been. The, I might have stopped or something, got worried about my health and, and or just it starts playing on your mind a lot more. So I was quite happy 
at the end of the day that the watch was inaccurate. It was just because it's that tight bends on a on a K loop. It, it was just give me an extra couple hundred meters yeah. every every hour or so. What I also find interesting was your you had a, a sort of a low dip in pace, if you like, around hour eighteen. But from hour eighteen to hour twenty-four, your pace increased consistently every hour. Mm. So it's like a six hour pickup, <laughs> if you like. As yeah, the, run, isn't it? <laughs> as the as the sun came up, your uh, your pace came up as well, which actually makes quite a bit of sense, really, with circadian rhythm and things. Did you feel it dip really late or at the middle of the night, like uh, 1, 2 a.m.? Was that the hardest point for you? Weirdly, so I saw this on, this is a really nice graphic by Precision Hydration, um, and they put it together. And I've seen some of the comments around, like, the circadian rhythm and stuff like that. But if if you were to post every other, barring, like, one or two people in history that have run, like, a decent 24 hour everyone's slowing down from from halfway down to the finish like i i suppose mm-hmm. i'm in the minority and that i do i have picked up a couple of times like in 2015 i picked up towards the second half of the race um so yeah it, it's it's probably if it was circadian movement i think there'd be more runners seeing that pick up you get a pick up in the last couple of hours because it's psychologically a bit easier but like i think it's a bit of like cause like what was it correlation and causation i think i do pick up in the hours but like at four like six hours to go is 4 a.m um so it's definitely still dark at that point it didn't get light until about 6 6 30 like then jamie and sarah jane and that's told me the record was slipping so i actually went behind david's time at, at 200k he got to 200k before me and i then had to pick up in the time after that so it was literally like right you've got to go faster and i was like how fast and they're like faster so I went a bit faster and they, I said, is that all right? This is, I can, I felt like I can give this for six hours. And they're like, yeah, that's all right, but you can't go any slower. So right. And then after five hours, I was like, are we still on? He's like, yeah, yeah. Is this all right? And it's like, I can go a little bit quicker. So then I kind of went a little bit quicker and in four hours. So I think it, I think it was psychological the whole way. Like the dip came overnight just because it's, you're kind of thinking, well, I got like 12, 14 hours done. I got 10 hours to go. Like how hard can I work for ten hours? And and that's in my mind. It was like, well, I can work less than this. I can only this is this is ten hours. If I got to do ten more hours of it, this is how hard I can work. And mm-hmm. it got quieter. There was an eight hour race that finished. There was a hundred k, and they started slowly dropping away. And the twenty four hour people, and that they all obviously not everyone goes the whole way through, as I've shown with my past two previous attempts, um, past previous five attempts i think um and and yeah so you kind of it got lonely out there i think that was maybe part of it i was just i i put some podcasts in i got into my own little world maybe i took for granted how well i was moving and i just wasn't focused as much on on staying on i was just like i was focused on surviving the night rather than thriving in the night and and that it's weird it's for the 24 hours you've got to get through as much of that race as unscathed as possible as physically and psychologically and that's what i was doing i was just getting through the night in one i and i knew i knew that i just had to get i had to be close close enough like within touching distance of that record that i'd get it i kind of back i always back myself in the last four hours i've said before like the race starts at 20 hours if you're in a 24-hour race so like especially in the championships, those last four hours could be massive because you can be multiple kilometers behind someone. But if they stop for a lap, if they struggle, if they start to walk, then you're quickly, quickly reeling them in if you're moving well. So yeah, I, I was just doing enough to to leave myself 
a chance. That's all I wanted. And uh, so yeah, saying we're not thanking the sun, we're thanking your pacing strategy early on. That's no, what, I, yeah, yeah, maybe the sun. The sun helps though, but like it only it's only the last couple of hours. Like I think it's a combination between your pacing strategy early on, the sun, and then something else interesting as you came on just now as the call. You mentioned to us that you ran a 10k uh, on the weekend, just gone, and you ran 34 minutes, which is quick, I think, for for uh, most of our listeners listening. Do you think that your ability to produce speed at what would probably be your threshold um, heart rate or threshold lactate, do you think that had a huge benefit for you as well in the last, in the back half to pick pace up? Because you're you're probably running 10k's a lot faster than a lot of other people running 24 hour races. Yeah, I, I, like I ran just under 32 minutes for 10k last October. Um, <laughs> so, like, I am reasonably quick for a 24 hour runner. Wouldn't I you think you're very quick for a 24 hour runner? <laughs> I don't know. I think Dave, Dave Dowdles, I think his marathon PB was low 220s. Um, Alexander Sorokin's just run 225. He's the world record holder. I, like, Alexander's a good, I think he's very, very specific to the 24. Hmm. Um, I think the level's got like you've got to be decent. You like it's it, maybe it's it's less a measure of actually running fast, but your aerobic capacity you need you need a big aerobic capacity. And as part of that, if you are well trained, if you are kind of like again in the sport for quite a few years, then you're going to go reasonably quick. I don't know if I, yeah, would it, it definitely helps into like mechanically. I'm 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 comfortable. Like if I have to open my legs up a bit, like it's never I'm never kind of anywhere near yeah threshold effort in that in that run like i think my heart rate peaked at like 148 um which is and that was too, like as it was in, in the hotter parts of the or the more humid parts i was hot the the temperature wasn't um and then towards the end it was like the heart rate picked up again yeah it definitely plays a part i, I like running fast right so like a part of it is just because i enjoy that like when the club i was joking because the club said to me like you don't have to run fast it's just a relay in our we have some like local sponsors they're like yeah just rock up five by 10k and then i was on the anchor leg and i was like right okay and they said no and i was thinking like they're going to turn up and i'm going to have like five minutes of a lead and i can just cruise around at a steady effort and then uh (laughs) then it was like baton got handed over with 30 second lead on the guy behind us so and he looked pretty quick he had a pair of like nikes on i was thinking oh no (laughs) so i like shot off i probably i set off i think the first k was like 308 or something um so like I kind of like psychologically I wanted a gap that, that was going to stay there in the second half. Um but yeah, I think it's important to have a variety of, of paces in your training. Like and the whole if your if your lactate's higher, like your lactate threshold's higher, like you kind of brings everything up with it. It's not quite as simple because yeah. otherwise we'd have eight hundred meter runners like winning the marathons. It's just yeah. there obviously it's oversimplified, but I think when you're the, I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of my training is is big, like aerobic training, and when like I think it's afterwards I've had a couple of messages from people saying, "What is it? My marathon PB is very similar to yours. Do you think I can do what you do?" And I'm like, "But you're focused on the marathon, and that's your PB. I'm focused on twenty four hours, and that's my ten kp. So my ten kpb is a twenty four hour training, ten kpb, and it came." The weekend before I did a 60k trial race and the weekend after it's in a 40k trial race and the two weeks and the weeks in between I had a hundred miles of training and I ran 31.59. So it's all like relative, isn't it? So I think, yeah, it is it's definitely I don't think it's integ like a key to a good 24 hour race. There are plenty of good 24 hour runners who, who wouldn't run quick over 10k. 
I mean, can't do too much damage, can it? <laughs> I think it is a huge piece to your puzzle, mate. Looking at your numbers and things and, and your other part of your training, I think the fact you can uh, you can bang out a, a fast 10K like that, it's even different to being fast at the marathon. Like a 10K distance is more of your is aerobic speed, whereas marathon is is more a little bit slower, right? So even though the guys who are running fast marathons and they're, and they're long runners, that still doesn't make them as quick as what you are over a, a 10K, I would say. So I think it, it's a really interesting part. And I would love to see your run economy data, actually. We've got some stuff from like my running economy from... So weirdly, so I ran a 50K last year in March. I ran 2.57. I went through the marathon from there in about 2.26, 2.27 depending on how which which generous watch reading you two take. Um I'll say two twenty six. It says two twenty six sank on the watch, but I like deep down I think it was probably just over this twenty seven. Um and there yeah it's interesting because my economy there was just under two hundred, around two hundred. Um and that was mainly off of, that was more the bulk of my train there was still quite cycle heavy. So I was kind of easing back into it. Uh, it was the first ultra I've kind of like really had a good one. And from there on, I, I, the, the, the training's gone more primarily towards the run. So then I retested in November before the one in Vaccio, and the economy dropped down, especially for the 24-hour paces. It was like a lot lower. Um, I haven't got the exact numbers because Jamie's got them at the moment. So, so like, but it was a lot lower, significantly. It was for the same, like the heart rate was was lower, but like the, the economy was just, yeah, it was just very easy for me to, to run the 24-hour paces I wanted to run. <laughs> Like and I suppose that's part of it. Like I am economical. Mm. If would I get like would I be that economical at those twenty four hour paces if I was focused on the ten k? Probably not. Like there is a big bulk of my training that's focused. Like again, every easy run is thankfully is twenty is, is around or at twenty four hour pace. Like it's nice. You, like it can be specific in your training by going for an easy run. Um, and so I think yeah, like I'm economical at those the longer distances. Like it's my my 10k is not even that good compared to my marathon. I laugh because I got a Coros watch and it gives these uh predictors and it predicts for the 5k it's like 13 15, 27 something for 10k, 61 or 62 for half, and then 229 for the marathon. And I, I think, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, my if I can run 30 minutes for 5k, I'm smashing like the marathon. My training's massively focused uh, if, uh, out of all the distances, it's focused more on the marathon. The watch is like, now, nah, mate, you're a 13, 15, 5K run outs. 5K, park runs, please. <laughs> I think this shows the power of such a long-term goal. Like over mm. eight years, you've you've taken what you're really good at and built it into a... And then built the... Like no one's born really good at running, you know, 24 hours. <laughs> it's not what we're meant to do, but you've trained yourself to be really good at that alongside obviously your natural ability to run fast. And uh, yeah, and here's the here's what you get from it amazing you've got to keep going longer in distance until you feel find you're good at it so like mm. if you if you keep going you've got 48 as camille did you've got six day thousand miles three thousand one hundred miles if you don't win a race just keep going longer and eventually <laughs> be no one else doing it eventually exactly. there'll be less and less people signed up to that distance so you're <laughs> defaulted to win eventually and I, i'm assuming yeah. at that kind of speed which your what was your average speed for it Five five eleven, I think. Per k, yeah. five eleven per k. Are you wearing a carbon shoe to run those? Yes. So yeah. that, and it would have paid off for you to be to be wearing a carbon shoe there, or 
Did you just feel like you wanted to? Uh, so Alexander Sorokin set the world record. He he was wearing them. Um, so I figure, why not? Eh? So I do think it does make a difference. I guess you got the the argument some might make is that the difference changes when you start going to slower paces. Um, but if you look at a 24-hour race, we're not running the average pace the whole time as well. So I'm a bit quicker in the first half. Mm. It's definitely having an impact there. Um, but I think even over the like, I wore I wore them for a lot of my training runs as well. Like 90% of my training in the hope that it conditioned me to wear those for a long, like for over a range of paces, but also for a long period of time. And yeah, I think it makes a difference. I think I definitely think it makes a difference. Like it maybe in terms of like the uh, yeah the the economic cost, the oxygen cost, the energy cost, but also just the damage to the muscles in the second half. Like it, it felt, yeah, it, it probably helped. Um, part of that's the cushioning as well as the plate. I think cushioning is quite important for twenty four hour runners. And and those like, I wear the Alpha Flies, and they are they're they're um, plush, uh, especially the the pair. I, I wore a box fresh pair on the day, and in hindsight. I'd wear it maybe for half an hour the day before because the, the it's weird. The box fresh pair I got, they're uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? Every other pair I put on from the box is fine. Like I, I've put them on since and worn the freezer ones, and they're uncomfortable. They're like really unresponsive pair. And I don't know if I've just got like an odd. I, like part of me was like, oh, maybe it's a it's a dud pair. Yeah, and then the records like almost like not hard. <laughs> like, and if I just put on a decent pair, I don't think that's the case. I think they're just a bit stiffer. Um, and it's like the, I don't know, the upper's a bit tight. I mean, I guess there must be some kind of manufacturing um, difference, like when when it's put together. But yeah, so I wore the yeah, I definitely wore the. I think the carbon plate shoes do help if you're conditioned to them. I think if you end up if you've got a walk strategy or you end up walking, it can do more harm than good potentially. They're not great for walking in. If you tried doing a long distance walk in a pair of uh, carbon plate shoes, it's some peculiar. Mm. And then I think. If there's any event you could really um, put yourself in the bin for, would be training for a 24-hour run. People are probably thinking, <coughs> with your long run, a 12-hour run or a 15-hour run, how did you structure your training and particularly your long runs when you're training to run for 24 hours? My longest run this year before the 24 hours was two hours, 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> I did four hours at the race in December, which is probably my longest run of that build and that was that was below record pace because i was ill um so that wasn't really that was just a, a an aborted attempt rather than a trend run and then the block last year was cut to three hour runs um and october i did a trial race that took me just under six hours but other than that yeah, yeah. like i think for 24 hour running and this i chatted through this with my coach tom craggs and we were talking about it if you do a six hour run that's 25 percent of your distance right even eight hours you're doing it like 30 percent of your distance like what what difference is that going to make really 20 percent, 15 percent of your distance it doesn't really it's like in terms of what uh, conditioning for you for that event you're not getting a huge amount like you're not going to do the the bulk of that work in one two three long runs even because this is so small compared to that the, the the main goal um i think you have to look back beyond the, the, the training block look back to your career build up steadily like you don't jump straight into a 24 hour before that you've probably done a handful of 100 milers hopefully so 100 k's right and over the two or three years beforehand you've you've got a lot of long runs they're spread out and they're called races um i did a six hour training run in the summer last year that was on the track it was uh it was in 30 plus degree heat i was practicing my cooling techniques fueling in those temperatures 
I think along the line like that, you have to add the value to kind of like weigh out the cost of it. So mm-hmm. if you if there are like if you are wanting to to practice kit, practice nutrition, practice your pacing, all this kind of stuff, make sure the shoes are okay. Then yeah, you can you can add extra value to a long run. But at a certain point, it just takes away, it, and and you kind of think, what well, am I better off spreading that volume over a week? So we focused on high volume um, training over the course of the week, spread it out more. I did a couple. I, I, there might be a couple of two hour runs in the week, and then a longer like the workouts. Most of my workouts were long runs like by anyone else's definition but they were just workouts for me but they were like 15 18 miles different variations in pace the long runs itself yeah they were two to two and a half most of the time some of them like two hours feels like i could do like 15 16 miles without actually having much damage i could run again that afternoon run again the next day but they were well fueled they were just kind of well paced hydrated there wasn't any stress on it, like not too much. And over the course of the the week, I, I averaged 103 miles a week for this for the for the block for this one for about eight weeks, um, with a peak week of 124, 125, so 200k. Um, the 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 one last December it was nine weeks at 108 miles with peak weeks again at 200k. I think it's you're better off spreading the load over the course of the week, for me personally. And and some of the 24 hour runners I coach, I coach like a bunch of people who've run 260 270 women who've run like over 220 and the longest we'll probably go in training is a six hour one but like i'll I'll happily go without that and it's down to the athlete really like if they feel like they need to they want to for confidence reasons it's worked in the past and they, they come out of them reasonably unscathed like if it like if you're new you've got the two sides to the coin of that like a long hour run long six hour run or something like that on one side if you're new to it, there's a lot of value to be learned. You can learn about yourself. You can learn about nutrition, your kit, how it feels. On that flip side of that, you're less likely to come out of that having well-fueled it, having well-paced it, so there's going to be a bigger cost. The one who's more experienced, ideally, you may not always the case, can pace that six-hour run well, can fuel it well, can come out of it reasonably unscathed, but then the value to them is, is less, again, because they've done it quite a few times before. I think I covered 48 miles in the, um, the six-hour training run last summer. Mm. around the track on my own i mean physically that's a long way still felt like unnecessary at that point but it, it yeah so it, so i'm not i i'm not a massive i don't think it's necessary to run a massive distance in in training runs i think you can it's an individual case basis like is what's the value what what benefits is going to bring what's the cost um and it depends on yeah you're like even just like i think i had one guy last summer he had a family holiday booked in in like one of the in the middle of his training block for the European 24 hours, um, Paul Maskell would run two six five. So we did a long run before we went on the family holiday, so we could chill out a bit more on that. So like it's not always about just yeah the the, the training side of it. It's what fits in best and and what's going to give that runner confidence and the ability to run a long way on the day. Mm. I saw it as being a very smart move, someone like you as well, with your background and history, because yeah, you could easily put yourself into an overtrained state long before you're going to go run for 24 hours which i'd imagine running for 24 hours you've got to have every single whatever you want to say match in the box bullet in the chamber sand in the bag as much as possible and energy stores full both mentally and physically to hit that 24 hours so taking any of that away in training probably isn't that useful for you yeah i think like it and it comes to the taper as well and it's people there's a lot of uh sort of fear 
uh, around a taper for especially for distance running, especially for some of the ultra runners because they a lot of their life is training quite he- heavily and, they, and, they, and there's there's an enjoyment to that. There's a satisfaction around the, the work that goes in. Uh, you've got to trust the taper process, and and I think even like of the twenty four hour, if you're not sure with your taper, just take up a couple extra rest days in that bit. Like it might be like one on the Monday, one on the Friday, one or like you're getting close to the race and. You, Oh, I was supposed to do a 30 minute run today, but actually, like, I'm going to rest because that 30 minute run won't bring you much that's going to help you in that race. But yeah, starting up on fresh legs as fresh as you can be mm. is going to be more beneficial because, and it's not how you feel at the start that matters. You might feel fine at the start with slightly tired legs and your pace is fine, you, you, your heart rate's fine, but it's 18, 19, 20 hours in. in yeah, you can, have, have you conditioned your legs and muscles for it? Yeah, it's important, but. Being ten percent more tired at the start line is gonna is gonna kick you in that second half. So yeah, I, I just I mean I enjoy it. I enjoy the long stuff. Like like and it is it is tempting to go and do. You see a lot of people doing lots of races. Like go and do six hour races, twelve hour races, loads of bits and bobs like that. There's a temptation to go and do those and call it training. I, I can't really get on a start line without giving it. I mean at least most of my uh, effort. So like I have to keep that in mind. Like I know. Like people, some people can race uh, consistently, and then they kind of just yeah, they go and use it as training, and they 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 pull it back a bit. I can do that, but if someone's alongside me with ten k to go in a race, and I'm I'm that well, it's just a training effort for me. I'm not letting them go. Like it, I can't. I, I don't know if I physically can at that point. So I have to keep that in mind, and that's why I probably won't race as much. In the like, I, I'll do shorter races. I did the cross country. I did a didn't do half this time i did like i've done yeah i'll happily do shorter races and stuff in the build-up because you can use that as training put it in there i'm I'm often maybe uh held back a little bit by the training fatigue so that's all right i can't go full gas um but yeah like the club know that as well that's the worst bit our our club manager enzo he's like oh robbie he's i think they had an end of year awards and i won the award for being concrete which i like to think was reliable um, I think that's what they meant. Like, like he knows that if, he, if if I'm called on to run for the club, I'll go out there and I'll give it. I won't be the first finisher because we've got a good team, but I'll be I'll be in a scoring position or I'll be there to support and yeah, reliable concrete. So my concrete legs, I think it's a compliment. I'm not a hundred percent certain. There's two two areas I want to cover. One, so you've got a 32 minute 10k which is very, very physically demanding and also quite mentally tough. And then a 24 hour, which is obviously very physically demanding, but mentally tough for different reasons. Do you prepare or do any mindset training to support the 24 hour distance or is it just years of experience and races and training? Do you- the 10K, the 10K is a good mindset practice for the, uh, for the 24 hours. I, I've often described this in the past there are, as you said, they're similar. You, you, we use similar te- coping techniques. We use similar psychological skills to get through different races, but we're using a slightly different style. So the mm-hmm. 24-hour race and the 10K, I, like I referred, I've referred to us to the, in the past to the voice, the voice in your head that's telling you to stop. And then 10K, that voice is screaming at you. 5K as well, like they're screaming at you, stop, it's rubbish, you're not going to do it, just give up, stop now, it's easy, if you just just, just back off, what's the point, you're not going to set the world alight, people are running 27 minutes, your watch has said you're better than this, right, and all this voice is kind of screaming in your head, and in the 24 hour, it's it's a whisper, stop, mm. what's the point, 
if you just stop for a minute, if you just pretend to tie your laces, then the record slips away and it doesn't matter. You can then chill out, but you can go home. You can sleep. Look, there's a, there's a hotel around the corner. You can go back to bed. The breakfast will be starting soon. Why are you bothering with this? Just slow down a little bit and that record slips away and then it's not your problem. And no one will mind. They'll think you're trying your best, but you can just ease off a bit. And it's this little quiet voice that's always chipping away. And you have to use the same techniques. But again, you like there's no point shouting back at the, the voice for 24 hours because you get exhausted. Like the psychological side of it is, is tiring as well. We know it has a physical impact on, on our perceived effort, on our actual um, like levels of, of tiredness and fatigue. So yeah, I, I like I practice it. I practice like I do positive visualization. A lot of that in my training. I, I mean, I think sometimes a lot of these skills we find even before we've started running, we've probably developed them in other walks of life. And sometimes when you talk about psychological skills of an athlete, it's not telling them what to do. It's highlighting what they already do and showing them ways to improve that. And and I go through the positive visualization in the build up. I run around my local town, just like imagining world championships and, and British records and just getting emotional and then kind of dealing with those emotions. And and I do like negative visualizations. Well, I imagine what's going to go wrong and how I'm going to deal with it. And I kind of, I don't do this too close to the race, but I'll kind of go through that process on an easy run. Right. It's tough. Like I'm or at the end of a long run. It's a really good time. Or to be fair, my favorite time to do it is, you know, at the end of a session, right? You've done a decent session. Where I do my sessions is a road loop. It's about a K and a half, 2K from my house. And it's uphill back. It's only gradual, right? It's only like, I don't know, 30, 40 meters uphill over a couple of K. But it's enough that it makes everything feel harder without it looking like you're running up a hill. And you're knackered from the session. And that's when I kind of go, this is my, this is hour 18. And I like do my little job back after my session thinking, no, no, I'm back. I'm in hour 18 mode. This is what's happening. I'm exhausted. How do I cope with this? How do I get to that lamppost? How do I get to the next roundabout? And I break it down and I practice. Yeah. It's something I've practiced purposefully in training um, throughout. And, and it's, and un, like unconsciously you're going to practice it anyway, because any session you do, you're finding ways to help it, like to survive it, to get through it. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. especially if you're saying badly, if you want to learn some good new psychological skills, go to a 5K and set off too quick. You will learn something new to get you to that finish line because we have a way to do it. Um, we have the skills there if we want to use them or we just ease off and stop. And at that point, you think, well, hold on, it's going to get a lot harder in 24 hours. I've just discovered some areas to work on in 20 minutes when like, and at that point in the 24 hour race, it's going to be 16 hours in and it's going to be a quiet voice telling you to ease off, go and start. And you find reasons to stop. And it's, I told me I loosened my laces at one point and I was like, no, I needed to do that. But I had to check with myself that it wasn't just a, I need a breather. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop. Like, oh no, I need to speak to the crew. I see this at 24 hours a lot. I've got to, no, I can't, I've got to speak to the crew. So I'm stopping to talk to them. And the next like two laps later, you're no, 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 I, I didn't get it across. I need to, this is what I want to say. Three laps later, you've stopped again because you want to eat this sandwich still and you want to say that thing to the crew again. And they're like, just fucking run. Oh, sorry. Um, just run. Just run, buddy. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's recognizing that self-sabotage in there. We will, we will self-sabotage in a 24-hour race because your body, your mind wants you to, to live a long and prosperous life. And what you're doing is damaging Well, can we talk about nutrition? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I've got all the facts on nutrition. You've mentioned sandwiches there. Uh, you mentioned, I think, come on, you said something about nutrition earlier on in the show. And uh, we have some some of your stats here. 24 30 gram uh, precision fueling hydration gels, 13 packets of chews, 
trying to read what's right yep. here. <laughs> Three uh, 90 gram gels. What uh, I have a client who calls them the champagne bottles. <laughs> he loves those things. Uh, 8.3 liters of PF60 drink mix. I can't read that, mate. Sorry. Ca- caffeine gum. Caffeine gum. Interesting one. A coffee. Uh, 14 or 140 grams of jelly sweets. Yeah. And. 150 grams of tomato pasta. pasta and some rice 700 grams of rice and 100 grams of jam you must feel a bit sick thinking about all that now or <laughs> do you enjoy eating yeah i love it I, I, it sounds like the re- that's the recipe book not the menu in the end there, i suppose isn't it the uh, recipe list the the jam and rice was mixed together so it was kind of in a uh like in plastic bags like these like a baggie without the bike parts yeah, um, so them, there was like 140 grams of rice and jam in each one, so like 40 grams of carbs. That was to mix it up, and otherwise I kept it simple with a with a pH pH and F. It sounds like a yeah, um, it's, yeah. With their products, like I've worked with Precision Hydration for quite a few years before they did the fueling stuff, and when they did the fueling stuff, I said to Andy, I was like, I'll try it out. Like if it's not good, like. The reason I don't have a nutrition sponsor is because I like to vary things up, and if it's good, I'll use it, and yeah. it's good. So I used it primarily, like yeah, most of the product I use. Um, the gels, I mean, I like one of those big champagne ones you talk about there, the ninety gram gels. Like last hour of the race, I just I downed one of those over a couple of couple of laps. It goes down easy. It's quite neutral. Mm. I think there's a mindset part of it towards the nutrition as well. It's that you are. I always get athletes to ask the question is when they say I stopped eating, I was like, why? I just I couldn't eat anymore. You're like, oh, what? Like, was you being sick? Was stomach going? They're like, no, I just couldn't face it. Yeah. Like, oh, you didn't want to eat anymore. Did you want to run faster? Did you want to run further? And you're like, yeah, you know, I did. It's like, well, you've got to get that mindset around the food in this situation. Like, it's it's part of running a long distance. You have to you have to work at it. You have to focus on it. You have to train and build it in. And, and I think there's a, there's a big psychological element to, to keeping that nutrition coming in. And I, I said to Nats and Jamie, we, were, like, we had the plan set out, it was 90 grams an hour. We ended up nat- averaging 94.9 grams over the course of the race um, per hour rather than total. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a case of like, right, whatever they give me, I will eat. That, and- that stat itself is amazing, by the way. <laughs> like science doesn't say that's possible. Um, I think they've they're impressed when they can get people on about 100 grams an hour for um, for like Tour de France race or marathon to do basically 100 grams an hour for 24 hours. I mean, yeah. it, like, the mad thing is, right? There's a study, a 1989 study, Ron to This is Greek group looking at Yanis um, Kouros running from Sydney to Melbourne, and they looked at his nutrition. It's a five day race, and in the first 24 hours, he averaged 130 grams an hour, and <laughs> over the the following four days, he averaged 90 grams an hour. Right. right. And this is 1989. And like Yanis right. Gross was the greatest ultra runner. He still is in my book. Alexander's given him a bit of a run for his money. Camille gives him a bit of a run for his money. Yanis was so far ahead of his time. And people are like, what was, what was so good about him? He was a mean, lean eating machine. Like, and this, his stuff was sweets, baklava, biscuits dipped in honey. Biscuits dipped in honey, you say? That sounds unscientific. What glucose fructose mixed at two to one? He's he's nailed it without even knowing what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. And this is back in the eighties. This is back when Dave Dowdles was still a world. It wasn't a world record then because Yanis took it. Um, but yeah, like it's. I, I think 
I don't know. Like, I think it's we're seeing some of the cyclists, especially in the Tour and the Giro, the pro teams, they're pushing 120, 130 at different times in races. As you say, they're not going super, super long. But even, like, Gent, Gent Wegelwam, yesterday, 260K, absolute horrible weather. The athletes are taking on more nutrition in those cycling races than they ever have done before, and they're finding the benefits. Do you mm. want to look at, again, like, you can... If you want to this generation of cyclists, if you want to believe they're clean, whatever you want to believe, that's fine. Mm. You want reasons they might be that we're going faster than ever. We're breaking, I think, Valverde's record in the Nice race. Uh, I don't know which one was it. It was no, it was in a, the Volta Catalunya this this week, just gone. And um, Roglic and Evnepol were quicker up a climb, which was three hundred meters, and then Valverde. Um, and they're saying like, bloody hell, what's going on here? If you want a reason that's happening, it could be the nutrition. The yeah. fact that they're actually fueling the whole way through and then they're putting out like, oh, I think it was 6.9 watts a kilo for God knows how long up this climb. If you can believe, however, there's many, there's many uh, possibilities, but one of them is that the nutrition is absolutely been nailed on at this point. And we're, we're taking it not just to the stage of, okay, let's uh, let's just get this on a per hour. They're actually periodizing it throughout the race. They're taking on more during some of like the, the sense when the actual the body's got the ability to digest a bit more at the lower times at the, the flat beforehand they're kind of they're fueling that and then when it gets to the when they're burning all the matches in one go they're making sure that the energy's there i think it's i i it's a, it's definitely trainable um there's a study by ita vitabe vibe God, I'm terrible with names here. Should be should get them written down beforehand. They took uh, a group of Spanish male ultra runners doing a six-hour trail race, and they had them doing 60, 90, and 120 grams an hour um, in their carbs. And they what they showed there was a, there was a, a significant difference in performance. But what they actually looked at was muscle damage, and through those three groups, the muscle damage was lower in the 120 gram group. Um, they were able to take it on. It had an positive impact on how damaged they were at the end of the race. They did gut training, so like the three weeks before, and each of those groups were training with that dis- uh, with that amount of food, and they, there wasn't any significant difference in in GI issues for the groups. So, like, I think we, I think there are, there are you can push it, and it depends on the athlete whether like sometimes your body's not going to use that, so it's actually not worth going that to the bigger numbers. We, I think people see the big numbers and go right, that's what I'm going to get. I'm going to hit the big numbers. You know, like, hold on, but your body might not need your big numbers. What race are you doing? What how what intensity are you working at? Like, what's your body burning it at any one time? And Jamie at Liverpool, John Moore's, he's, he's been great. We've been doing that kind of stuff, not just for myself, but we've got the an England team going out to the Anglo Celtic Plate 100k next weekend, this weekend, um, and we've tested all those guys. We've kind of like gone through all of that. Jamie's a team physiologist. I'm a team coach, and it's fascinating. And and we we've had other runners in as well. And some of them, they're like, I'm going to take on 90 grams an hour. And they're not using it. You're like, oh, that's all right. Just chill out. You don't have to. Um, so it isn't quite, it's not just as like you get as much as you can in. I think like on the bike, I've done 105 grams an hour for a 33-hour race. That was fun. Um, and then the last, that was a, this race across Italy um, a couple of years back. And I, one of the guys I coached, a friend of mine, Andrew Phillips, me and him, we set off. 13 minutes apart because it was covid times uh he was 13 minutes behind me we we came together about 150k from the finish he went past me i caught him up with 100k to go on the final climb and from then onwards and i like i was joking i got up to him i put the big ring on and i was like all right mate and he's like oh i'm feeling a bit rough and so i just i thought right i'm going for it and i absolutely smashed it off up this climb and we raced intently for the last three hours one of the most fun three hours of racing i had and i had three packs of Mentos an hour 
it's 38 grams of carbs in a pack of Mentos. Um, my handling skills on the bike are not great. So like having the tube of Mentos where I'm on the, the aero bars to squeeze in my mouth was easier. Um, but like 120 grams an hour at a final three hours and it was full gas to the finish. I beat him by five minutes, but because he started 30 minutes later, he won by eight minutes. He was fourth, I was fifth. We had, a, But it was like the most fun I've had in a bike race because it was just me and him just absolutely giving everything for three hours. So like your body can take that on. I was using the energy. Like I, I was like going as hard as possible, hitting the flat. Like like I'm not very powerful. So I, like the, the paces and the power I'm putting out is probably not massive. But like Andrew's a he's a strong rider, and like he knew that I'd take some time out of him on the climb. But I got on. I got thirty seconds on the on the descent, and then on the flat, he had to kind of he was only just reeling me back in. And part of that's the end. Andrew was so I did a study for my master's learner for the. Sports nutrition post grab with the IOC and Andrew averaged about 75 grams an hour for that race, and I averaged 105. We finished in almost identical times, but it was quite interesting to, to look at. And then I think for like cyclists, other factors come in, like your position on the bike, how aerodynamic you are, like how much energy you're expending. He's much more efficient on the flat and the downhill than me. Um, I'm more efficient uphill. So, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I forgot the question. I've gone off on one. Look, you just set me up. <laughs> It's like a wind-up toy when it comes to sports nutrition. That was the plan. It's okay. <laughs> Amazing. We'll uh, we'll let you get back to recovering then. Or run, <laughs> run PB your five k or something. I don't know why you're being lazy with ten. Five k. I got. It. I want to get under fifteen minutes with five k at one point. I do. Okay. I do want to do it. There's not a list. Finding one to enter, isn't it? And being fast enough. But uh, I'll, I'll take your advice. I'll try and do that at some point this year. And I'll send you a text. Be like, thanks for the uh, inspo. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie, I think you are you are an incredible athlete, mate. But I, I think it's also a really interesting insight into how you've trained your mind uh, mm. for that for that 24-hour race. And um, I look forward to seeing you go for the world record. When is it? The, the world champs is in December. I'd like to do that. Um, I don't think I've got an ability to beat Alexander Sorokin, the world record sir. I think he's just, he's, a, he's another level above. I'm hoping in hot and humid conditions in uh, in Taipei, it's a bit of a leveller. And then we see what happens there. I don't think, I don't, yeah, he's run 319k. That feels a long way off. That's still, is that a marathon ahead of me? Um, so yeah, I'm realistic. I don't think I'm breaking the world record anytime soon. Um, I do think I can go further and take it one step at a time. If that gets closer, I'd like to try one day to go over 300k. That would be really, really, really nice. I don't know if it's possible. I'd like to go above it. And then, then you look at the next stage. Then you think about further. See what Alexander might have put that record even further by then. Mm. I don't know. I think you have all the ingredient, mate. I'll back Alexander I'll back was 40, I think he was 41 when he set that world record. Or 40. Yeah. 41 for... <laughs> It's gone. You've missed your time. So I've got five years. Five years. He's going to look up your date of birth. I can even yeah. find the article. Um, I I, five years at the start of this podcast. I think also it's, it'd be interesting if you guys head over uh, to your, you can go to your Instagram page, Ultra Britain, or over to uh, Precision F and H Instagram page, and they've got your stats on there, some cool infographics, and also hit the link and go and, uh, and read through your, I don't know what they call it, but case study. Um, deep dive case study there's good info in there if you yeah, are interested in the nutrition side of it definitely it's what it's one of the biggest areas i think a lot of ultra distance athletes can improve yeah uh, 
just don't just always i had this kind of word of caution when people read these things find out what works for you what's worked in the past and try and improve it bit by bit rather than look at Rob, robbie eight and try and shove exactly the same into your face yeah yeah one thing that and they said you you uh you listen to podcasts and things and they didn't mention our particular podcast but i'm sure it was in there but then also one song you just had on repeat unstoppable by uh sia when yeah i don't i don't I've, i don't actually have the like, song you didn't know how to turn it. it off like your alarm <laughs> you know like one of my athletes mentioned she sent it to me before and an athlete I call, um, called amy sarkis who ran for uh, great britain at the 100k last year and it was just that two lines stuck in my head but like podcasts i like, I like history podcasts so like I, I don't listen to many sports ones yeah so like there's a bbc sounds one called you're dead to me and i the, the one i can remember that i listened to during the during the race was the history of high hills um so they were originally like shoes worn by like peruvian cavalry and stuff like that and i'm like this is what's stuck in my head this is why i slowed down in the night probably trying to make comparisons to your vapor flies (laughs) (laughs) where they came from but yeah i I do yeah i i uh i would uh recommend that if you want a, a good history comedy podcast you're dead to me but obviously, this one first. Your own. I'm. I've got. I'm recommending other people's podcasts on people's podcasts. That's all right. Like your, your uh, customer base audience. <laughs> we'll allow. Good, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Right. And, thank you. And a lot much. of insights there as well for our listeners. Guys, head over to Instagram Ultra Britain on there, and uh, everything you need from that page. Anything else, mate? You want to cool. plug? I wrote a book. Thousand and one running tips. If you'd like some advice on all elements of running, um, there's a thousand and one bits of advice in there. Some or all not relevant to everyone. PB <laughs> not guaranteed, but likely. Yeah. What's your favorite bit of advice from those one thousand of one that you wrote? Read step one. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Um, ah, I can't remember favorite bit of advice. I've got extra ones I'd add in. Uh, uh, the, the 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 man the maxim I used when writing the book was good advice doesn't need to be boring, so there's I try and make sure there's some humour the whole way through the the book that underpins the solid advice in there. In terms of good advice, just just keep eating and keep moving and keep smiling. That's an easy one. Just smile, uh-huh. smile more. Perfect, yeah. Robbie. Thank you very much for your time. Cool. Nice. Awesome. Thank you, mate.